This is the Kick Aspirational Podcast. We are in season two. Today I'm with Lori Kahn, who has been a longtime friend, and uh, we're going to be talking about breaking through barriers, mentally some interior work today, particularly about meditation. So welcome, Lori. Thank you for making time today. Thank you for having me, David. Yeah. In fact, um, we had kind of, uh, we just did a meditation ourselves. You just, you were helping me with my own meditation practice yeah. and uh, showing me how to do it better. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, so Lori, how did you? Um, I guess you know. One, let's talk about how we how we know each other. We've ha- we have boys who are the same age, mm-hmm. Willem and Jack. Right, and they have known each other from grade school on. So we've had a lot of parent connection. Yeah, we have over the and years, and then developed a friendship over time. Yeah, and the boys have had some uh, wild adventures that we <laughs> had to intervene on occasionally. Talk about. Yeah, <laughs> as many boys do. Um, but tell me about, um, how did you come into, I, I really want to talk about meditation because I've talked about it in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a, I was in Similu, it's kind of an island uh, off of northwest, west Sumatra, um, just south of Banda Etch, and a little surf retreat in between a lot of things I was doing this summer when I was very busy, and I intentionally pl- stayed at a place that was very low-key um, and was reading Deep and Simple, which we were talking about a little bit earlier which is kind of a book of uh, meditation and I would say kind of the, the philosophy of Buddhism, but kind of as an inclusive, you know, it's not non-religious, just more kind of the philosophy and inclusive of other faith traditions. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, it's getting into the practice of meditation is one thing, keeping with it is even another. It is. Um, how did you get into it and what what attracted you to it? Were you were you born into it? Did you... Did you how did you how did you find it? No, I I wasn't born into it. Although I was exposed to it when I was a teenager, I grew up in Albuquerque, Albuquerque, New, New Mexico. Mexico, and it was quite the the uh, hippie free love place in the seventies when I was a young teen, and um, so there were all kinds of wellness centers and wacky places to go. And <clears throat> excuse me, I used to do theater. As a kid at the University of New Mexico, I was part of the theater company. And, of course, across from the university was all the holistic healing places. I'm going to go keep talking. I'm okay. going to turn off the, the tea kettle in the background here. <laughs> yeah, you got to have tea for these conversations. Um, and so I would go over with friends or over by myself, and I was exposed to acupuncture and acupressure and Chinese medicine and... Um, and there was a meditation group there at the time that I got to experience a couple times. And I thought it was interesting, but they didn't really talk about it, which I actually found over the years was very typical, was that if you went to a more traditional meditation space, that they didn't give you instruction. You basically came in and everybody was quiet and they were sitting on cushions and it was pretty uncomfortable, but you just tried to roll with it. But that was my first experience of it. And then later on, I moved to California. So they expect that you kind of had like knowledge of meditation or they just thought you'd come and sit quietly and think about things? Yeah, I think that there there are definitely some traditional pathways of meditation. We were talking about some of the more austere practices or the more ritual based practices. So we were talking about like in Buddhism, there's. I think what's popular, particularly on the West Coast, is the, the, what, what the Tibetan style, which is mm-hmm. very mindful, very tender-hearted, very open and, yeah. and inclusive. Yeah. And there's some strains that can become quite orthodox, like any any faith tradition that just basically gets overcooked and overconstructed, right? 
I think so. I mean, I have a lot of opinions about that kind of organized stuff yeah. that can yeah. be another conversation for another day. Because you started out, as, I mean, you're you're Jewish, and you yeah. started out. Did you did you practice Judaism growing up? Oh yes, okay. I was raised in a very conservative. You know, there was the Orthodox, there was the conservative, and the Reform kind right. of. Um, and the, the Reform is the most liberal of the traditions. Yes, okay. and so I was raised in uh, the conservative synagogue. Um, my parents were of that generation where, you know, it was generation upon generation of Jews. I mean, my 23 yeah. in me is literally 98.9% Ashkenazi Jew. Whoa, that's, the so. good, that's, that's one of the smartest uh, strains of Judaism. <laughs> right, of course. Smartest people on earth, I think. <laughs> so pretty purebred, you know, came from that really old, steep tradition of uh, observing the Sabbath on Friday night, went to Hebrew school, I was bat mitzvahed, I was confirmed, even in Albuquerque, New Mexico, which was a pretty unusual place. So most of the Jewish people I knew I was related to. Oh, wow. Okay. It was a very small town um, or a small Jewish community. And I was, most of the people I knew were Catholic. Okay. So that was more of the predominant religion that I was exposed to growing up was Catholicism. <clears throat> But I don't know that I was a spiritual kid. Mm. I didn't relate to religion in that way, that it was a spiritual practice. It seemed like a lot of dogma, a lot of rules. Kind of cultural and rational. Kind of fear-based. A lot of rhetoric, people sitting around babbling. And I didn't think that they were really paying attention to what they had to say. Right. It, and that really bothered me. Did it feel like more like parroting than kind of than yeah. like a deep-hearted... Yeah. I didn't think they were thinking about what they were saying. And it, I think it was a typical of the times, too, in the early 70s, that we were all questioning everything anyway. Right. And so when I was going to be bat mitzvahed at you know, the age of 13, and I went to our rabbi at the time, and I said, I don't think I can do this. I don't think I can be bat mitzvahed. I think it's probably sacrilegious, because I'm not sure if I believe in God. Yeah. And I'm certainly not getting there by sitting and reading all of these phrases that I don't connect to, Right. that none of it makes any sense to me. And it doesn't make me feel anything. Right. And he was a super smart guy, because he said, oh, your bat mitzvah is not about believing in God. You're going to spend the rest of your life exploring that. Asking the questions, hopefully. Yeah. yeah. And he said, this this is really a celebration of being part of an ancient tribal tradition, an oral tradition, and part of a community that's been around for many generations. Right. And it's symbolically saying, okay, you're an adult now, and I'm giving you the privilege of leading the Friday night service, the Sabbath service, in my place, and that's my job to do, and you get to do it, and you're a kid. That's cool. And so it's a little more passing the baton and uh, an extension of that oral tradition, and, and I totally bought into that hook, line, and sinker. And I did it, and it gave me a lot of freedom, I think, to explore my own sense of spirituality, whether that was uh, religious or not. And maybe why I got interested in those things later on when I was in high school and I went to all these sort of healing centers and things just to check it out. And What was your attraction to those places? Were you seeking? Were you kind of trying to figure out what was out there or just kind of a curiosity? I think it's because it was out there and I was just curious mm. and interested in anything that was different and new. And, and I think I've always had that personality that I'm very curious and sort of open to uh, 
all the influences and what's going on in the world. And I'm even that way now at, you know, my ripe old age that I won't share with you. um, (laughs) I'm a little older than you. But anyway. Roughly the same age. So did you, I mean, did you, I think we'll be in the same decade tomorrow. Yes, I'm so happy about that. You're a grown up. It's my birthday now. tomorrow. I'm getting moving into a new decade. But did, He's uh, sweating a little bit when he says that. So did you, um, tell me about, I mean, before we get into meditation things, I, I kind of, I'm really interested, particularly in a transition like this, how do you approach or how do you think about, a lot of times I'll ask this at the end of an interview, but I think this is all about the interview with you. Okay. Um, how did you, like, how would you have defined spirituality then versus how would you define or did you even mm. define it then versus how would you kind of think about it now? That's a great question. And I think, you know, not not really sitting with it and, and contemplating it more. And if it's completely a different answer, I'll call you later. Tell you that. But, <laughs> well, we'll take the um, one you have right now. I think that's, that's I, the most I'm going to go one. for just yeah. what the spontaneity of it. And what occurs to me in the moment is that... I think in my earlier years, spirituality was a belief in something outside of myself. External belief. Yes. Yeah. Um, in a higher power, if you will, or, or some force, mm. some magical force, yeah. mystical force outside of ourselves. And I think that that was more of that esoteric path that started in the 70s that you know, I was checking out. And I think now, uh, particularly the last... 20 plus years that I've been meditating and noticing how much I've grown and changed, um, that spirituality to me is much more of an understanding of my own condition and that of the human condition. It's more internal. Yes. And so I feel way more spiritual than I think I ever did. I think I actually had some aversion to it when I was younger because it didn't feel connected and now it feels so deeply connected and doesn't really have anything to do with a higher power, although it doesn't mean I don't have beliefs around those things. Right. It's not um, solely reliant upon those beliefs. Is, it, is there a connection? I mean, I think we've talked about some of this before, so I'm asking a question I may know the answer to, but do you feel like the spiritual element is kind of how you're connecting to this energy that's around us or that surrounds us or is it so, is it different than that I would I would be reluctant to separate the spiritual quality with the human experience right and I think it's more as an as the spiritual aspect of our humanness right and this journey that they're, they're not separate, that I don't have to carve out a Sunday afternoon for my spiritual practice, but that that's a part of who I am. It should be a part of the whole program, right? It's part of who we all are. And yeah. that, that, in fact, it may be the part that where it connects us all, right. where we're all very much the same. And I think that there's a lot, at least in Buddhism and in, in a mindfulness meditation practice, that really, that's a big emphasis, is that sameness that unity that that we're not different and that in that only seeing our differences that there is a lack of a spiritual connection right there's with a connectedness ourselves and by virtue of that it's going to be a, a disconnect with the spirit of other human beings right 
So there's this element where inclusion should be a natural outcome of, of yes. who, we be, who we are because we're all connected. And if we're all connected, there is no them and us. It's, yes. it's us. It's like a basic value system. So I would say that meditation is the practice of that basic value system, just mm. like I value my teeth. And brushing my teeth is a basic value system. You know what I mean? It's a practice because I value them and I need them and I want to preserve them. Right. I brush them. And right. I floss them. And hopefully floss. Yeah. And that's a little <laughs> bit how I view meditation is that it really is a practice of my values. You know, we were talking earlier about um, we were going to the meditation we did. You were, ta- you were walking me through, one, how we kind of need to change our mindfulness or awareness, but also that it's not just objective observation, but that there's a tender heartedness to us. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that a little bit? And, and, um, maybe, you know, because I think a lot of people are like, okay, so what's meditation? Do I just sit there and think about nothing? How does that even work? Right. Um, what's the, what's the process that, that somebody goes through when you're trying to help them understand meditation? And then of course, step into meditation. Yeah, I think that's a popular misconception in in meditation and even a, an obstacle for people to do meditation is that, oh my God, you know, well, I can't stop my mind. So right, right. I'm not going to be good at that. Sure. And I think that it's addressing those misunderstandings or misconceptions, misperceptions about what meditation is that... Right. If, if we use one of the popular terms for meditation is open awareness, you know, so what is... Open awareness. Uh, right. So open awareness means I notice everything. So if I have a busy thinking mind, I notice that. And it's just a habit of conditioning that when I think, I become so wrapped up in what I'm thinking about, so identified with it, so wrapped up in what does it all mean, and it means I'm not good at this, or I'm really good at this, and we go into that more competitive thinking mind. That's no longer open awareness. It's a closed awareness. We've like entered this small room of the thinking mind, Hmm. and so... It's learning that we can include that. And we were talking about it when we did our meditation earlier is about how to include I have this problem solving mind or this planning mind. Or the or, ADD mind. I mean, I exactly. bounce around a lot, but that's. Yeah, yeah, or like that, I described it as a pinball machine. Right. That that often will be my experience is that my, my thoughts are bouncing off of those little pins, ding, 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 you know, and it's being able to witness it and have some open awareness and like, oh yeah, there's the pinball machine in my mind. Right. But I'm standing in this place of open awareness where I can include that and not be dragged around by it and not be controlled by it and not be absorbed in it. So it's almost like a stepping back, but it's not a disconnection with the thinking mind. It's not saying I'm going to stop my mind. It's more, I'm going to learn more about the condition of my mind and we talked about you know a lot of times we're all or as you said earlier we're we can be our own worst critics and so when we think we're trying to do one thing i'm trying to meditate i'm trying to be mindful i'm trying to be aware of what i'm doing not just reacting yeah and then we find ourselves reacting because <laughs> the monkey mind t- tends to do that we're judging the judging mind so you know the act of judging or of of saying, you know, don't do that, or, or you know, those kinds of things. Um, I guess, what's the, is, 
is that what you would call kind of nonviolent communication or how would you how would you phrase it how would you talk about like what's the process where people can start to be aware of what they're doing without criticizing themselves or without judging what without they're judging. doing yeah. i think that that it's sort of like um understanding that the judging mind is a conditioned part of our mind so if you think about a newborn baby um, you know still pretty young preverbal all the way up until perhaps even 18 months the way that they're in the world in a nonverbal preverbal way is they're like open awareness Right. All of their senses are just bouncing off of their environment and their little nervous system is organizing and their muscles are coordinating. And that you really see the raw system of the human in that being. And then the programming starts with the caregivers that live outside of that baby by going, oh, they're smiling at me. And then they put a whole lot of reactivity to that. And the baby is checking that out and feeling wow, you know, that feels good. This is good, this is bad. And then they see the mad face or the frustrated face, and then it starts to get added to language. So it's good and it's bad and it's right and it's wrong and, you know, it's enough and it's not enough. And our entire language system and then our educational system, which is based in language, is all about critical mind. Right. And so it's as if this core essential part of who we are is left sort of pre-developed but there in this awareness of our surroundings and also being a part of it where there is no judging mind we don't know what red or blue or truck is right we're just aware of it and suddenly all we have to define our world is the language and the thoughts that that have been given to us that have been programmed into us. And you get every kind of influence from school and, and family and our social and our culture. And when we can see it that way as this kind of just aspect of the, the way a human develops, and when we sit in meditation, it's almost like the opportunity to observe our own conditioning. Right. And to choose... Is that really how I want to think? Is it really how I want to react? Right. You know, if I wasn't operating on that kind of reaction and all of that programming and all of that conditioning, who would I be? Well, I think that's that's a good point. It's um, we've talked about this quite a bit. I was talking with Bushin Tucker, who you know, and I think you're you're helping him to learn to meditate. Yes. He was very, they came to the workshop Sunday. He had a great time at your workshops. So you and you're by the way, you're you're doing this. Uh, where are you doing your workshops? Well, I've moved my studio, which is called Ohm, to... Uh, O-M? Ohm, yeah. yeah. Oh, well, on, you know, the website's Ohm Laguna Beach. Ohm because, Laguna you know, Beach. I think O-M Ohm Laguna is Beach. owned by, you know, the gods yeah. somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> but ohmlagunabeach.com. And I had a studio, as you know, downtown Laguna, and I just moved my studio into a new yoga studio in North Laguna called Yoga Sapien. Yoga Sapien. Yeah. I've been there. Yeah. It's a cool place. In fact, I have a water bottle with a big... Quartz crystal oh, in it from there. Oh, you too. Those yeah, are yeah. cool. Willem and I saw those. We were in there. We had to. We were. We were suckered in. So no. I'm teaching um, classes. I have four meditation classes, and those are kind of these. I call them hit and run classes. They're 30 minute classes right before or after a yoga class. So they're really a perfect combination entree in for people who feel overwhelmed by a longer one. And then I do workshops. So Sunday I did a 
intro to the foundations of mindfulness meditation, and that was a two-hour workshop. So when I sign up for my Yoga Sapien yoga class, which mm-hmm. I use the app for, then I can, you can sign, sign up for your own yeah, yoga, or your own meditation yeah. before or after. And it's only $10 for a 30-minute wow, class. Wow, that's, that's too inexpensive. You what should charge deal? more. It's okay. <laughs> it's good to get people into the classes. That's, um, you know, I, I get to teach in a lot of other places too. I have corporate yeah. clients and I've done mindful parenting and I've worked in the school system and you're working with, with teachers. Lululemon as well? Um, I'm an ambassador for ambassador Lululemon. For Lululemon. And I'm the first uh, mindfulness meditation ambassador. Oh, that's awesome. So it's very cool. And they were actually a client of mine, a corporate client where I, I used to teach the management team. So they would have these management meetings and retreats and trainings. And they'd bring me in to do meditation for a half hour, an hour with that team for two or three years. And then they invited me to be an ambassador. So I'm in my second year of a two-year ambassadorship, and it's really fun. I get to do a lot of fun things. With That's them. awesome. The, and my um, picture's up in the Fashion Island store, so you can... I had I had a client tell me that he was there at Christmas like a crazy fool shopping, and that the line was out the door, which it kind of always is. And he Lululemon's was, popular here in Southern California. Yeah. And he was really aggravated and annoyed and irritated. And he said, I looked up and I saw your picture. Oh, that's cool. And I immediately took a couple of deep breaths and calmed down. So it, it worked for that's some That's awesome. Yeah. So we were talking about uh, being aware of basically the kind of the, I like to use the term construct. Like there's, mm-hmm. you know, particularly in religion or in any kind of dogmatic kind of philosophical community you've got, um, could be education, could be even a sports team, whatever. People construct a way of working together which is helpful. It helps kind of organize us. But I think to your point, it's also good to be aware of it that when you're, especially when you're born into something, like if you're born into Judaism or I was born into this Dutch Christian reformed religious kind of, when it's your culture, it's your parents, it's your faith, it's the whole thing's tied together. It's really hard sometimes to pull your, you know, to realize that it's not the, that the whole world doesn't work this way for everybody. Mm. Um, So part of what you're saying is, one of, the, one of the reasons, that, if I'm hearing you correctly, that, that meditation is important is it allows us to separate ourselves a little bit from all of that so we can be aware of the essence of who we are and, and include that. It doesn't make those things wrong, mm-hmm. but it allows you to, to say this, this, what was the, the mantra? This too. This too. Yeah. That this too is part of my story. This too is part of who I am. Yes. And I think that it's, it's you know, part of our meditation that, that you and I did today was about that sense of getting anchored in being present in the breath and present in body awareness and then letting ourselves not hold on to that space but just sort of expand into the noise of life and the immediate noise of the house or the street or whatever and then the noise of our minds right and that construct that we come from all the belief systems and thoughts and rules and everything that's packed into all that programming and then being able to sort of come back and go, wait a minute, who is, who's living this life? Sure. Who's doing this thinking? Right. And one of the things that we gain from that, besides open awareness, right. which sort of opens our perspective, if you will, and our relationship to things doesn't become so fixed in the identity that we have in the construct that we were raised in. But um, it's also the impermanence of it all. And that impermanent nature is that we kind of live in this illusion that things are permanent. It's always going to be this way. So that when something changes, we're either, you know, happily surprised or or not happy about it at all. 
And those are the same as constructs that you're talking about. You're talking about the construct of an identity where we have those same constructs and fixed identity around all the little things in life. And that's where all the reactionary sort of stress-related stuff I had a flight from. at this time with this seat, and now I don't have this flight. It's yeah. a delay. You see people screaming at yeah. the poor lady, behind, the poor guy behind the, mm-hmm. the counter. And the reality is that person has no control over any of that. And, it's, and I think most of us know that. I mean, they're just reading a computer screen like the rest of us. But there's something inside us that feels like it has to get that out, and that's the target for our aggression. Right? Yeah, and it's like getting caught in a fly trap. Right. For some people, there's so much reactivity. There's hyperreactivity going on in their nervous system, whatever's going on. For them, maybe they're just sick, or maybe they're going through a really difficult time personally, but they're not able to sit and sort of be with everything and notice that, you know, it actually is changing and moving, maybe not as fast as I'd like it to. But it is it is changing, and I can be with it. This mm. too, I can be with it, and so all of that builds up in people's nervous system, and they become extremely reactionary, and they don't can't see their way out of that construct. They can't see their way out of the box of that situation, mm. so they just kind of explode in order to get out of there. And I think um, those are generally people who don't think they can meditate because they're wound too tight or they're type A or however they self-describe. In fact, it's the perfect it's the person who should be meditating. Meditation for them because it's about starting to calm your nervous system down and, and become self-reliant in that way that I actually know how to bring myself down from all this reactivity. And if I try not to judge that I'm being reactive and now everybody you know doesn't like me or is looking at me and all that stuff that happens with the judging mind. But just to be able to go, oh, I'm really caught up in that. I, I feel just trapped by all this stuff that's going on. And I, if I can practice just breathing and expanding in a safe way a little bit beyond that, I start to build resilience. Right. And this ability to be more in the flow of things. Well, so I think, you know, one of the, <laughs> this podcast, the Kick Aspirational podcast is all, you know, a lot of people when they travel and do you know public events the, one of the common questions is how did you create access which i really take to mean how did you create this lifestyle brand and life that you know that kind of reflects who you are and, and i think people are asking me that not because they really care about the mechanics of how i did it but because they want to do that for themselves and so one of the terms in the in our brand guide for excess was kick aspirational that um we got into a hang up with one of uh, a discussion with some marketers about what 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 was cool, and I realized that cool was kind of a broad term for the people we were talking to. Um, you know, Barry Manilow was cool for us. We were trying to define something more along the lines of ACDC or you know um, different, like what we would call kick ass. Like it has to kick ass. But I said, you know, I don't kick ass can also be taken the wrong way. The terms get constri- you know get kind of interpreted. So I said it has to be kick aspirational. It has to be kick ass in an inspirational way, positively kick ass. And um, and so the, you know when you're talking about that, I, I guess what I'm rec- what I'm kind of connecting with is a lot of times in points in our lives where there's a lot of change and we're highly stressed, there's also a lot of frustration. And particularly if you're somebody who likes to control things, a Type A personality. Mm-hmm. And maybe you've been successful by controlling things. And when you start to lose control, then people start to freak out and you start to get these wild emotional swings and reactions and things that we aren't proud of, very judgmental and mm-hmm. um, what some, somebody might call you know, violent communication. Mm-hmm. And 
I think what you're saying is that's the that's when you think you're not the right type of person for meditation. That's probably the right time to force yourself into some some disciplines where you kind of step back from all that, yeah, so that you can move forward. And I think that you know what the words that that come up for me when you're saying that is something um, you mentioned earlier in our conversation, and that was this tender-hearted approach. Mm. And what I was telling you about when we were doing our meditation earlier, which is, what's my attitude Mm. in my meditation practice? So that if in my life practice, my attitude is one of control. So let's just say, yeah, I'm really aware. I'm super controlling. and, And that's what's creating a lot of stress. And I just am. And that's what I'm like, you know. And I'm stuck. But it's wreaking havoc in my life. Then the thing to do is to find a practice that has an antidote right. in terms of its attitude and its quality. And a lot of times, if I'm saying I'm controlling, then I'm buying into that construct as who I am. Programming it to your mind. And like, I can't be anything else. Right. You know, there's no chance for me. That That's a pretty miserable path to take. And I think in meditation, you start to loosen your reins on identifying with one way of being and you start to find other ways to be compassionate and to be kind to yourself so if you're sitting and you notice your mind is wanting to control you this too ah there's the controlling part of me Mm. back to the inhale and the exhale and the breath oh there goes my controlling mind and you just keep flowing back and forth in it including that as an aspect of who you are that could be a useful tool when you need to control stuff but that there's this whole other wing of the house that you've right. never occupied any of those rooms. And you're starting to develop a relationship with the other aspects of, of who you are because we're so much more multifaceted than we give ourselves credit for. So there's a tenderheartedness that we have to learn to apply to ourselves, mm-hmm. maybe even before we can really apply it very well to other people. No question. It's easier to be nice to other people. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, that was funny. So in this Deep and Simple book, one of the things that uh, he talks, Bo talks about, and he was, the documentary, it was, it was, part of the reason I went and got the book is because in the, um, won't, was, I think it's Won't You Be My Neighbor, uh, this documentary about Mr. Rogers that came out before the new one. Wait, the new one's called Won't You Be My Neighbor. I think that's the new one. That's the new one. So it was the previous mm-hmm. one. It was, uh, I just had it pulled up a second ago. I'll see if I can find it quickly here. Um, but the... Uh, yeah, Mr. Rogers and Me was the one, that's the documentary I was thinking of where they talk about um, a deep and simple way of living. And Mr. Rogers used to give this book, um, Deep and Simple, to everybody he met. And he was a Presbyterian minister who was, mm-hmm. um, his practice was non, he wasn't preaching the gospel with words, he was te- preaching it through behaviors Behavior. with puppets, right? Yeah. And it was the inclusive gospel of love, basically how do you love yourself and how do you love everybody else? Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things that in this deep and simple book that they talked about was how, when, you know, whether it's mother Teresa or the Dalai Lama or these deeply, um, in touch spiritual, tenderhearted people exist and can go through life where you and I, you know, that's putting you in the same camp as me, but where I might go to, let's say a church service on Sunday and come out of there feeling refreshed and revived and go treat somebody nicer than it would otherwise. Um, he was saying, you know, what you'll notice with people like the Dalai Lama or people who are in this deep spiritual practice is they're kind of viewing everybody on that, 
plane as that kind of child of God, you might say, where everybody has this innate ability. And whether they're, you know, they're buying a bagel, they're buying that bagel with this deep sense of love and respect. And every interaction is very, mm-hmm. it's, gotten, it's gotten to a point where they're not, it doesn't even have to be as intentional as it would be for some, you know, for maybe somebody like me. Um, because they've, they're breathing that into their existence. Their meditation is a daily active thing. And um, I just thought it was uh, one of the fascinating elements was that this becomes, when you start putting this practice in your life, you're tenderhearted to yourself, you're tenderhearted to others naturally. It starts to become a natural element of who you are, not some add-on that you do because you did something, you know, you went to church or you, you had some, some prayer. Yeah, and I think that, that you get to be more of who you really want to be. Because right. I think everybody wants to be that way more but just as reacting to the chaos right of life and i do think that that you know to aspire to be like the dalai lama it's it's um it's a tall order and i don't have that aspiration because i don't walk that same path where my entire life is absorbed in that path right. um i am living a more ordinary life <laughs> and i used to call what i taught um meditation for ordinary people right and it was really you know to go back to perhaps when i really started actively meditating was because i was really going through a lot of personal you know trials and tribulations and difficulties and challenges and it changed my mind, it changed my heart, it changed the way I felt, it changed the way I interacted with other human beings. And um, it had a huge impact on me. And I think I was just a a natural teacher. I used to be a yoga teacher. I love teaching what I know, (laughs) what I've learned, like, well, here, try this, you know, not like I I know more, but I've tried this, you want to try it, too. And let me share it with you. And um, you know, that's, it's been many years. So obviously I've accumulated that and I'm a bit of a responsibility junkie. So I study hard (laughs) and practice hard because I want to be, have integrity and be good at what I do. And yet I do have ordinary interactions where, you know, I've gotten into an argument in the Ralph's parking lot (laughs) over a parking spot, (laughs) you know, but I do walk away from it and laugh. Right. And say, wow, okay, I just saw. But you observed that you did it. I observed that I did it and I got off it You're quicker. aware of it, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and I had more, less judgment, more resolution more quickly, if you will, that I don't get caught in looping and looping and looping over problems. Right, well, it's easy to have that argument in the parking lot and then drive <laughs> away and then replay that argument yeah. over and over. Well, this is what I should have said. This is what I should have exactly. done. Exactly. Rather than say, oh, look, David just got in an argument in a parking lot. Isn't that kind of yeah. a little bit ridiculous? And maybe, and even ridiculous maybe is too judgmental, but look, David just had an argument in the parking lot, you know. Well, and it, it, it was actually a really great teaching opportunity for me um, because I had this argument. It wasn't even an argument. I just told the guy to F off in the parking lot because he was <laughs> screaming at me about the way that I parked yeah. too close to his car. And... Um, and my response was so, even shocked me. You know, yeah. I was just like, F you, you know. And then I was kind of like, oh my God. <laughs> Who is Did this I just person? Say, yeah. <laughs> I just got in my car and drove away as fast as I could. And I had a moment thinking, what if anybody that's ever taken meditation from me just heard me say that in the parking lot? And I was on my way to teach a class. And when I got there, I shared the story of yeah. what I'd just done. 
and I was laughing and I was just saying, this is what it is to be a human. This is the human experience. We're going to have moments of great imperfection sure. where all of our flaws are on the table. It's our attitude towards how we deal with that. What we do with that information, can I learn that to grow? What is it that I needed in the moment? Why was I so high strung that I had to respond to this guy? What was it about the way he was talking to me that that I had this reaction? My willingness, and I think this comes from a long-term mindfulness practice, is that I go into inquiry. Right. I go into some self-inquiry, and I grow, and I learn something, and I have more of a light touch with myself, more humor towards myself and don't take myself too seriously. And yeah, maybe the next time I give someone the parking spot, you right. know, and I'm just a lot more like easy about it because it's who I want to be and that I'm choosing rather than reacting. But we're just humans. It kind of gives you the opportunity. I mean, if I'm hearing you correctly, it sounds like it kind of gives you the opportunity to, to not hold on to that thing that you're maybe not as proud of. And to say, you know what, this is what, this is what I just did. Why did I do that? Do I want to do this again? Maybe not. Next time that I have this kind of reaction, what would I do differently? Mm -hmm. And it gives you the chance, kind of like in, you know, in, in Kung Fu, you, you, we, we practice a lot of, um, a lot of forms for different types of scenarios so that when you're caught in a situation that you don't want to be in, you have a natural reaction to it that allows you, that you wouldn't have otherwise, right? It's a discipline, it's a practice. It allows you to be aware of a situation. It teaches you to be aware of when people are doing things that maybe you don't want them to do to you. And it allows you to control yourself and control the environment and to take a specific reaction that doesn't extend further than you want it to. And that also kind of stops the thing that you is happening to you from happening. And it kind of sounds like a similar idea. And I, that's been one of the best parts of even my own little, I don't have a great uh, meditation practice, but my own little meditation practices is just to be aware and reflect and not kill myself that I did something that I wasn't proud of, but to say, okay, I did that. Is that what we want to do? If it's not what we want to do, what will we do differently next time? Mm -hmm. And kind of just say, there it is, this too. Yeah. And, I, you know, I would even um, point out that, that, even trying to qualify your practice as great or not great mm. is part of that judging mind versus the open mind, which is to say, you know, when I meditate and the things I've learned when I meditate is really opening up that awareness that I'm becoming more mindful of my environment. I'm using, I'm accessing the tools when I'm on the airplane and I decide, you know, I really want to transition out of the go 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 and just use this time to maybe solve a specific problem to get more creative or just to let it all go to the side for a little while that your ability to make those choices are becoming more fluid through the practice of meditation and so I always think of an and it's like kung fu which is a mindful movement mm. practice and harnessing energy in a certain way, conscious energy and physical energy, which is what yoga is. Yoga is a moving sure. meditation practice, yeah. at least traditionally. You yeah, know, it's yeah, more yeah. of a workout in a lot of arenas now. But traditionally, it was very much moving meditation. And I think of sitting meditation, which is the hardest kind, except for walking. We did a little walking meditation. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's, that's actually harder than you think it's going to be. <laughs> Con connecting it's your like, breathing and your walking. Yeah, I think of it as like I'm sharpening my sword. Mm. 
and that the sharper my sword, the easier it cuts through the problems in my life. It's not like using a, a rusty, dull sword to try to right. get through life. The other thing that kind of came up for me, David, is is when we were talking about um, me getting in an argument in the parking lot and how I learned from it, where it comes in even more handy because maybe I never got to go back to that person and say, I'm so sorry. Yeah. Which part of me wants to because I, I learned something. Um, but I may not have that opportunity. Where that kind of mindful awareness, non-judging, tender-hearted, open awareness can come in handy is in relationships. So whether that's interpersonal or professional, whatever, every interaction we have with other human beings is a form of relationship. Is am I being mindful of speech? Am I being mindful of thought? You know, what are my intentions and my attitude in this conversation? Rather than I'm just blah, 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 and things fall out of my mouth. I said something the other night because I made an assumption in a social setting that other people knew something that I knew. And I said something in front of everyone, and I found out the next day I was the only one that had that information. And I felt terrible, but my immediate reaction was, please forgive me. I really made an assumption. Right. And I was wrong. And it just cleans it right up. You know, it just addresses things in a very honest open-hearted kind of way where I'm willing to learn from it instead of all the amount of time we spend replaying and what should I have said or tiptoeing now around feeling guilty yeah all these things guilt resentment all the stuff so I believe that that you know you're sharpening the sword for your journey through life so just like kung fu you're not walking around ready to pounce right it's in the part in the background of who you are it becomes part of the fiber of your being where that reactivity is available to you and it's the same with your meditation practices you're cultivating all of these abilities so that you have access to these tools i, I almost think like uh i had this you know we live in a small town and so when you're at we have a lot of multi-way stops so like there's four-way stops there's like there's six-way <laughs> stops at the one at thalia and, and glenary is probably the worst and, and a friend of mine posted something that said, you know, the measure of a man is how they behave at a six-way stop. You know? <laughs> yeah. And, and especially, when there's, you know, there's, I would say that maybe in our little town, there's some people that have uh, more, more a sense of entitlement than maybe some other places. So they think because they have a better car or whatever, they can just drive, blow through those. Um, you know, the number of, for example, G-wagons that blow through those, <laughs> you know, it's higher, I would say, than, than, yeah. than other There's cars. There's a hierarchy. Yeah, yeah. Who can blow the stop sign? AKA douche canoes. <laughs> but the, sorry, that's judgmental. But the... Um, <laughs> See, you caught yourself. Yeah. Uh, trying to be funny there. But the, but I, you know, the, but I guess the thing that, uh, that I've caught myself doing is um, when I have taken advantage of a multi-way stop or when I've pulled in and thought I was in the right and somebody honked their horn at me and the natural reaction is to give them you know tell them the number one with the middle finger um I've had it twice now where somebody contacted me afterwards and apologized and I've also contacted somebody and apologized and one because you know them and you know how to contact them but also I think it's kind of it's refreshing to live in a place where you you know enough people that you realize that the things I do actually matter even in traffic, mm -hmm. Louis C.K. has this great bit about there are when you're, you know, a lot of people, or we've all done this maybe, when we're driving and we get upset with somebody driving in front of us or doing something, and we start saying all these things that we would never say to their face, mm -hmm. right? And I think it's that 
it's really not about the other person. It's not about their driving. It's about what's going on inside of us. Mm, exactly. And part of what makes it funny is we all realize... Yeah, we should never be doing those things. Yeah. Those are terrible things. There's an interesting little analogy in, in recognizing, you know, that kind of interaction from the mindfulness standpoint, and that is I'm throwing hot coals at you, right. right? You just ran that stop sign in front of me. I almost wrecked my car. I had to slam on my brakes. It scared me, made right. me mad, and I'm screaming uh, whatever, you know, cuss words I know at you and what I think of you and all this stuff because I'm behind the screen. Right. You can't hear me, but I'm in my car doing it. Well, I'm holding the hot coal. It's your choice. I'm getting burned. Right. Oh, right, 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 right. So every time I think so that holding I'm the hot throwing coals is the real hot problem. Yeah. coals at you to try to burn you, I'm the one actually standing there with the hot coals in my hands. Right. So it's causing me pain. Right on some level. You know, in, in Buddhism, they call it suffering, which is just such a big, heavy-weighted word in our culture. But the idea is that this is a painful experience that I'm having. Right. And if I could take a couple of breaths and notice, wow, that really scared me. Right. Because generally, fear is masked by anger anyway. Right. And it happens so quickly that we don't realize it. But it's being able to, like, maybe I just need to pull over for a second and take a couple deep breaths and go, like, whoa, that scared the living daylights out of me. And put my energy there into that self-awareness, maybe some self-care if I need it. Then I'm more transformed and learning. And maybe the next roundabout, or which is where I see it all the time in my neighborhood, right, right. six-way stop sign is that I'm the first one to give right of way. Sure. Well, I think to what you're saying, right, in, in, in Tibetan Buddhism, I mean, one of the core elements is trying to eliminate suffering. Yes. So if, if you're holding the hot coals, you're suffering. Yes. But you throwing those hot coals at somebody else it expands the suffering to another person. Right. And the idea is to try and deal with your own suffering and not try and share it with everybody around you in a negative exactly. way. Right? And that's why that practice of self-compassion, uh, self-awareness, you know, tender-heartedness towards yourself, understanding your judging mind, your critical mind, it's about noticing all those hot coals and how every time you're judgmental towards yourself or hard on yourself or self-critical or just running scenarios through your head and having regret, that it's like you know, shooting arrows at yourself all the time. Right. And how I'm going to be with others is either walking around so you don't touch the arrows that are sticking out of my skin. Right. Because now I'm very sensitive and I don't want to get too close. So I have this tendency to use humor or sarcasm or whatever it is, my intelligence, or just to be withdrawn or cold is my way of protecting myself because I'm in so much pain. Right. And that when we turn the meditation practice towards ourself and include it and say, whoo, man, this too. And it becomes not just this crazy mind too, but wow, this pain is here too. And I can breathe and be with it. We actually can watch the dissolution of that suffering and pain. And that pain and that experience, it doesn't have to be a big cathartic rolling around on the floor experience. It's actually more subtle than that. I soften and I heal and then I don't have to be guarded towards everybody. Yeah. I mean, even physical pain, right? I mean, you can breathe into physical pain and start to unwind it. And I would say, um, you know, for people who who do suffer from physical pain, chronic physical pain particularly, is 
probably the biggest obstacle to happiness and peace of mind of any other person that I've ever encountered in the many years that I've been teaching is that there's what physical pain does to one's mind and emotional state is so debilitating. Right. So if I was going to point somebody a direction who has that uh, challenge in their life for a particular kind of meditation, I would say that you, you should look at mindfulness-based stress reduction, John Kabat-Zinn. Um, his first book, I believe, was called The Whole, Ca- the Whole Catastrophe. Okay. Um, the Whole Catastrophe was, by John Kabat-Zinn. I think so, but we'll Google and make sure that that's the right title. But okay. uh, I know catastrophe is the right word. Yeah. And he wrote that book in the 70s. And John Kabat-Zinn was you know, part of that movement, I think, of guys in their 20s in the 60s who went to India and Asia looking seekers. You know, looking for that spiritual life because there was such a big... Is it full catastrophe living? Full catastrophe living, thank you. Yeah. John (laughs) Kabat-Zinn. And he came back after being trained as a monk and trained in Buddhist meditation. Um, But he was a scientist and he was from uh, Boston, Massachusetts. And he was at the uh, Harvard Mass Medical School. And um, he started bringing some of these techniques to the medical community to anybody who they couldn't help. And it tended to be people who had chronic pain, who just were not getting relief um, through medical intervention. And so he created the original template for MBSR is what it's popularly known as, or mindfulness-based stress reduction, which you will find in hospital settings all over the country because they have a lot of scientific data behind it. Um, very much uh, non-religious, maybe even not so spiritual practice, but excellent for people with pain. And, and I think that, um, you know, UC Irvine, the Samuel e. Center for Integrative Medicine, I know they have MBSR. I have an MBSR teacher that teaches workshops at OM, um, who I'm meeting tomorrow to put on the schedule. So it is an eight-week program, but I do highly recommend it for people who have Chronic, chronic pain. pain. There's a lot of different styles of meditation. And I'm a big proponent for trying everything and finding what works for you and building your own uh, set of tools for what works for your life. But that's my way. I'm not so much a joiner that I like jump in and I get in one lane and I stay there. Yeah. That's just not my personality. So I've studied with a lot of different teachers and, and have access to a lot of different tools. And your focus right now, you're working with Cornfield? Uh, Jack Cornfield and Tara Brock, who's also quite a well-known teacher, um, they are part of what's called Insight Meditation Society. Insight Meditation Society with yeah. Jack Cornfield. Yeah, and Tara it? Brock. Tara Brock. Yeah, and they, you know, if you look on their websites, there's lots and lots of free content in there and meditations and talks and they're brilliant writers and brilliant teachers and in their wanting to create a program kind of a certification and a program for a high quality meditation teacher in the modern world that didn't follow a more austere buddhist path and become study the buddhist dharma to become a teacher um they created a program and i'm a I'm a member of the first cohort that's ever done it in the world. So there's 300 of us internationally that got accepted to this program, and we're nearing the end of the second year. So I got to do lots of retreats with them and had about 20 other teachers during that time on live broadcasts and 
mentors and you know it's been a great process even though I've been teaching a long time has been just a, a great journey for me to study with them and I want to mention my first exposure uh, was probably in my 30s and I was doing yoga and when I did yoga in LA and before I moved to Orange County and I became a yoga teacher I was really taking the more traditional it's called hatha yoga classes and my teachers did meditation at the beginning and the end and right. I really loved it right so I started getting books and studying and and if there was a workshop or a teacher speaking I would go when I lived in LA and then much more so after I had some health issues and I couldn't do yoga I really couldn't do any exercise at all for a few years and my mindfulness and meditation just saved me it gave me a place to go and really transformed my life so much that when I was healthy, I didn't want to teach yoga anymore. I only wanted to teach meditation. Right. But I've studied with a lot of different teachers. <clears throat> I do want to say my first teacher because she's so cool and so amazing, and I would read every one of her books. I would recommend. Um, and her name's Pema Chodron. Pema Chodron. Yeah, C H O D R O N. Pema, and she's just funny as can be, and she is a Buddhist nun now, but she really started out as an ordinary mother and housewife, as yeah. I uh, have had on my resume as well, and um, and went through a divorce, which I also did, and she really dove into the deep end, you know, and wears the robes now and shaves her head, which I'm probably not going there because <laughs> I like my hair and, and my clothes, but um, really, really brilliant teacher who's a Buddhist scholar but speaks an ordinary language. And her first book is called Start Where You Are. And the second book is called The Wisdom of No Escape. And I highly recommend either of those. Start Where You Are and The Wisdom of No Escape. Yeah, great, brilliant, wonderful, right. funny, but brilliant books. And, and I do want to add this, something that I said to you earlier, which is when you read books like this, is that you just take a bite. Right. You just read enough until you go, wow. That's <laughs> so, enough to chew on right mm, now. That was yeah. interesting. And you didn't leave it at that. Because all of my books are annotated and underlined and folded corners. And I read with a pen and I fold corners as well. Yeah. And for me, these books are part of my practice and my study of mindfulness. As that I'm reading a little, I'm planting the seeds of that new awareness through sitting and breathing and allowing. And then I carry on. Right. With life, but I see those seeds. And a lot blossom. of these will have good practices in them too, correct? They all have yeah. practices in them. Jack Kornfield has a book, um, I believe it's called Meditation for Beginners, is a great book. And Pema has one too called How to Meditate, but um, but I like Jack's book on meditation for beginners. It may even still come with a DVD if people have anything to play those things on. <laughs> or there may to. be some place to go look at it. <laughs> Back in the life. old days. Yeah. It, it came with a DVD, but um, yeah, and then I've got podcasts and stuff like that. So you have, what's your podcast? My podcast is called Ohm at Home. Ohm at Home. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. And, uh, and where do people find that? Um, you can find it on my website at ohmlagunabeach.com. Ohmlagunabeach.com. Yeah, there's a tab for a podcast. You could find it on iTunes okay. under Ohm Laguna Beach or Ohm at Home. And then... Something on my website that's sort of a fun primer for learning how to meditate is there's a link on, I think, the second page of my website, the, the bio or somewhere in there, um, on the What We Do page. And it's at the bottom of the page, and it's a link to SoundCloud. 
and it's called the three-a-day meditation challenge and I did this little series years ago and it, it was really fun and a lot of people did it and I wouldn't necessarily recommend you have to do the challenge you know you have to approach it that way but there's a three minute six minute nine minute 12 minute 15 minute and 18 minute guided meditations on there so I talk you through about half the amount of time and the other half you practice with some music in the background and you can do the three minutes every day for until you're ready to do six minutes if you wish and then you do six minutes a day until you're ready to do nine minutes and understanding that that three minutes gets programmed into the neurotransmitter pathways of the brain so to add three minutes, your brain already knows how to do three minutes. Sure. So just adding three minutes every time is really not a big deal for your nervous system. And eventually, you are building a longer practice. Right. That said, my favorite quote is a, a Dalai Lama quote. And he says, if you don't have time to meditate, meditate all day long. <laughs> and what he's <laughs> suggesting is just do a few breaths right. if that's what you have time to do. That's okay. So if you don't have 18 minutes or you don't have three minutes, then take three conscious breaths. Connect with where you are. Connect with the birds singing in the rainy do weather it. or whatever's happening. Just practicing presence as often as you can throughout the day. And that's enough too. It really is fine. But it, it's, it's a bit of an elixir that gets to you from the inside out, and you kind of want to do it for longer and longer periods of time. Sure. I, and then um, there's another tool called Insight Timer, which is my favorite app. Insight Timer. And why is it my favorite app? Well, because there's a lot of free content on it, um, and there's a lot of great payside content. And unfortunately, right now with meditation apps, and there's tons of them, there are all these paid subscription yeah. Uh, apps, which is cool, except for if you don't really know what, what you're you doing want. Yeah. and what you want and what works for you, is two weeks enough of a free trial for me to figure that out? So Insight Timer really has both, and um, it's got courses that you can do and has guided meditations with lots of different teachers, including Jack and Tara. Yeah. But it also has a timer on it, which is what I use. I have it set for 30 minutes. I have, you know, background Tibetan singing bowls, clanging. Um, and it it keeps time for me. Right. So I don't have to worry about it. So those are my recommendations. Books, you got an app, you got a SoundCloud, We've got your, your website, homelagunabeach.com. And do you have links to a lot of the stuff on your website? Everything, okay. yeah. Very cool. Well, thank you, Lori, for making the time today. Thank you for helping us understand meditation. <laughs> thank you, Dave. Appreciate you and helping me meditate today. Yeah. That was a very kind birthday present. Thank you. Yeah, happy birthday, Dave. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Welcome to the Mid-Century Club. Yeah, Mid-Centuries. Enjoy the ride. Happy I'm still here. Yeah, that's a... That's oh, a, it just gets better. Every, that's a, that's a, <laughs> I'm, I'm having a better day every day, so that's... that's thank you. Yeah. 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 So this has been the Kick Aspirational Podcast. Uh, this is not a spectator sport. I love getting your emails and your uh, your your messages. Uh, probably the best way to get me is on Instagram, David58, D-A-V-E-E-D-5-8. Or you can also hit me on my Facebook messenger. It's just my name, David Vanderveen. But um, we're going to keep bringing people like Lori to you so you can work on the interior and the exterior, and we can all kick and break through barriers together. So whatever you do this week... Please be kick aspirational.